Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. First, a happy new year to everyone out there listening. Nick, our first episode of the new year. I hope everyone is safe. I hope the holidays were enjoyed by all on the show today. Nick and I are going to dive deeper into the recent rulings by the Colorado Supreme Court and the main secretary of state to remove former President Trump off of their ballots. How this happened, what it means Where's this all going to net out as it goes before the Supreme Court? We got you covered. Joining us in just a bit to break it all down is a University of North Carolina law professor. He's the author of the book, The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen. And that's Michael Gerhardt. He's going to stop by the pod, help us break that all down. Plus, we're going to look at the House's current impeachment inquiry into current President Joe Biden. There's nobody better to help us break that down than Professor Gerhardt, as he was a witness on former President Trump's first impeachment hearings. So more on that in just a bit with Professor Gerhardt. Plus, later on in the program, Nick and I are going to weigh in on the recent resignation of Harvard University President Claudine Gay. If you missed everything that's been going on with respect to that story, the hearing, the subsequent fallout, the Penn president resigning, the Harvard president resigning, now they're calling for the MIT president to resign. Does this all matter? We're going to let you know. In our final segment, Nick, I I said Happy New Year to everybody out there. Obviously, Happy New Year to you, buddy. How was uh, the new year? How was the holiday break? I know you did some traveling, went out to Memphis, had some barbecue. Hope you got the name of that barbecue place so we can get them as a sponsor on the show. But how's everything going your way, my man? It was good. Happy New Year to you, to you too. I, I stumbled through that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Happy New well, Year to you, you too, uh, and to our listeners and viewers. Um, yeah, it was it was a great holiday. I, you're right. I did traveling. Um, you know, for work. And I thought I'd be more prepared for it, but coming basically going cold from um, like New Year's Day, getting up an early flight to Memphis and going right into a, a workshop I was doing. Yeah, well, it, was, it took a little more toll than I thought. I was, you know, pretty knocked out. And then I got back here last night uh, and then went right back at it today. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just out of it. And yes, got a little bit of barbecue as well. Every time I'm in the South, I always do. Uh, although I'm barbecued out, I think. I mean, I, I I need to take a break from it, man. The pulled pork, the pulled chicken, all the sauces. I'm like, you know, it's it's a lot, but it was, but it was good as always, though. And I got a chance to catch the uh, two bowl games on, or the you know the playoff games from the hotel room. So uh, it was exciting, man. Yeah, How about you? yeah, good, man. I I um, had a good New Year here. You know, just kind of hanging out with the family. You know, Florida, we don't we have a couple of like barbecue places, but it's not like you know other places in the South and and Tennessee's got great barbecue out there in memphis and uh shout out to some of the barbecue restaurants we, we have one down here in miami i think it's called uh, shorties uh that's pretty good but um spent new year with the family and stuff like that got some some stuff coming up in the new year for people that have uh seen me across their dials we're going to be covering the iowa caucus we're going to be covering the debates that are coming up uh in, in the coming week there's going to be a debate between governor DeSantis and nikki haley uh, former President Trump is going to be doing a Fox News town hall with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum in parallel. And then obviously January 15th is the Iowa caucus. And we kick this thing off and, and we get you ramped up and get ready into primary season. And we're going to have uh, Jimena Bustillo over at NPR, a fantastic uh, political reporter over there. She's going to be joining us in our next episode to kind of break all of that down. She was at the fourth debate out in Alabama uh, between the candidates, you know, Chris Christie's 
Hasn't been doing much in Iowa. He doesn't expect to do anything in Iowa. He's been in New Hampshire the whole time. I think he's set up shop with an apartment over there. So he's not going to be at the debate stage next week. Vivek Ramaswamy is not going to be on the debate stage because he hasn't met the threshold. So it's interesting, like, right? You know, like, we're, it's almost like uh, it's that week in between the Super Bowl and the conference championship games. You know, like, there's nothing going on and everyone's talking about the Super Bowl because the Pro Bowl doesn't matter. And we're just like kind of waiting to get there. And now, as you and I are recording this, uh, there's CNN town halls with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley here as voters are still, you know, hearing, for, uh, at least in Iowa, from from the candidates. And I'm like, can we just get to January 15th already? Can we just kind of see like what's going on here and the way voters are, are feeling, at least in the state of Iowa. So we're going to be covering all of that uh, in the next episode. Uh, I alluded to him earlier in the show. So kind enough to join us now is UNC law professor and the author of a great book that you can go get out wherever books are sold. It's called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. And that's Michael Gerhard. Michael, uh, Mike and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to begin with there's so much um, that we can ask you about with your subject matter expertise. We actually teased you out a few episodes ago because at the time, the former uh, the current president, excuse me, uh, President Biden and the House had announced an impeachment inquiry. We know all obviously this book that you wrote and obviously you were part of the first Trump impeachment as a, as a witness. I want to get into all of that. But then over the break, Colorado, Maine have taken the former president off of the ballot and, and former President Trump. I want to get into all that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your book. Why don't you tell our audience, I mentioned the title at the beginning, but why don't you tell our audience a little bit about it and why you wanted to write it? Because it really is, it reads like a guide. It goes through this, cuts through the partisan lens and says, look, this is the law and this is the circumstances around and the history of impeachment. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so, so the book, which by the way, will be out next week, um, tries to provide introduction and overview of the process for presidential impeachment. Uh, this is something I've looked at and studied for decades. I've had the privilege of being a, a witness uh, several times in presidential impeachment proceedings and served as special counsel to Senator Leahy when he was presiding officer in the second Trump impeachment trial. So my hope is the book will provide insights into the law of presidential impeachment from somebody who's not just studied it, but had an opportunity to witness it firsthand. And um, hopefully it's accessible to everyone. Um, and my hope is not to talk about what's good for Republicans or what's good for Democrats. It's just the basic law. Um, and one great way to think about impeachment is just take the name of the president and the political party of the president out of the equation and just ask yourself, hey, if we had a president who did X or Y, do we think that's an appropriate case for impeachment? You know, we've seen that there re recently now. I mean, we're going, we're in the midst of, you know, potentially another proceeding. Um, and obviously, too, with the former president. You know, way back when we started the show, we had Professor Eric Foner on, and we talked about, you know, coming out of the Civil War with Reconstruction. You know, the idea of the impeachment at the time of President Johnson, going forward, it's the idea of that, that's a that's a heavy thing to take on. It's a heavy thing. You it's the rubric, it's the Rubicon in Congress. We've now, however, have seen this used as a blunt tool more frequently. Have we gotten to a place where because you just mentioned a moment ago that, you know, we want to take the politics out of it, take the president out of it, just focus on process in the work that you're doing. Does that seem viable at this point, just considering the political climate? I think it's necessary. I think it's the only way to get out from under uh, using uh, impeachment as a partisan weapon. Republicans in Congress talk all the time about adhering to original meaning. Well, the original meaning of impeachment is that it's a nonpartisan tool. It is the primary mechanism for holding presidents accountable for their misconduct. It's not there to be used uh, just against a president we don't like or to be used against only presidents from the other party. That's not what impeachment is about. It is uh, a rarely used mechanism for the most serious kinds of misconduct that a president could commit, uh, typically in office. Um, and in order for that to fulfill its objective, I think we have to look at and focus on the misconduct, uh, which is proven, uh, which demonstrates a serious abuse of power and not look at the political party or how this will affect 
a presidential election. Well, you know, you kind of fed perfectly into the follow-up because I alluded to it before about how you were a part of uh, the first impeachment of the former president, Donald Trump, uh, with respect to the phone call that he had with Ukraine and, and the president Zelensky right now, who's going through a war effort. And we know about why those funds were so essential in the lead up to all of this. I would love for you to and you kind of dive into both impeachments in the book, but I would love for you for our audience and giving away some of the book, of course, kind of put to rest about the political motivations and taking that out is the former president when he was impeached the two times he were, was it justified? Were they politically motivated? Given the facts and circumstances, did what the former president do rise to that level of high crimes and misdemeanors? And what says the UNC law professor who wrote a book about this subject matter? Well, of course, I testified in the 2019 impeachment hearings against President Trump. And what I said there is what I still believe. And that is that President Trump committed impeachable offenses. Something to keep in mind is uh, that President Trump is really responsible for those impeachments. It's because his misconduct was proven. And it not, it's not a matter of fiction. It's not a matter of partisan belief or hatred. So President Trump is the one that abused power. He's the one involved in that phone call with the president of Ukraine. He's the one that refused to comply with subpoenas that Congress sent him uh, for responses um, uh, regarding his, his conduct regarding Ukraine and the president of Ukraine. And we might recall what President Trump wanted to do at that time in 2019 was he wanted the president of Ukraine to issue a false narrative. He wanted that president of Ukraine to simply announce a criminal investigation into Joe Biden for conduct relating to Burisma, which is a company that his son Hunter was involved with. Guess what? That theory, that narrative was disproven at the time. It's the same narrative the Republicans in Congress are pushing now. It hasn't gotten proven since then, but instead it serves a political purpose for Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump has asked Republicans to impeach Biden because, as Trump says, it happened to me. No, it happened to Biden. Um, President Trump, not because of made up stuff, but because of serious abuse of power. And then in January 6th, something everybody knows about from real video, not doctored video, from video that we all watched in real time. And the members of Congress are there in real time. And they knew that there was a storming of the Capitol, violence directed against the Capitol by Donald Trump. And that's why seven senators broke from their party to convict Trump in that second trial. That's the largest number of senators from our president's party to vote to convict that president of misconduct. Staying with the topic of you know, impeachable offenses for a moment, you know, it was noted that some Republicans had came forward. And in the conversation about this upcoming impeachment, when asked to provide facts or anecdotals like evidence to why moving forward, I mean, it was documented that it was a struggle to generate that. You know, in your book, there's a conversation about like how do you prepare the materials before moving forward. From what you're seeing with this initial push from Republicans for this current impeachment process, you know, where is that in violation to the core principles and really what should be happening in an impeachment process? Is this a case of Republicans not really following process and trying to get to the point like the former president has spoken of and asked for? Or are they still well within the appropriate guidelines of moving forward in an impeachment inquiry? I think they've left the Constitution behind. I think that they are trying um, to gut impeachment. They're trying to remove it as any kind of serious mechanism for presidential impeachment. And don't believe me, the Republicans' own experts said in the one hearing held on President Biden's possible impeachment that there was no evidence yet of any impeachable misconduct. That was said in late September. No fact finding has been done since then um, regarding Joe Biden. There's lots of hyperbole regarding Hunter and there's lots of wishful and hateful thinking about Joe Biden, but that's not a substitute for real evidence. Uh, had there been real evidence, the process would have looked different. That's what we had with Richard Dixon, for example. There were months of evidence uh, compiled in the House the Senate, and by a special prosecutor. All that evidence showed the same thing, that Richard Nixon was abusing his power. 
In 2019, the House Intelligence Committee pulled together weeks of intensive fact-finding that was done with witnesses from within the Trump administration. Numbers of people who actually Trump appointed were the ones who were testifying about his misconduct. And if we fast forward to 2021, the second impeachment trial of President Trump, that too wasn't something concocted. We all saw the videos and we all saw the damage. And we all heard President Trump's speech. And we hear even today, President Trump putting forward the big lie that he somehow won the presidential election in 2020. We all know that's false. Congress knew it was false. That's the way they certified the election ultimately for Joe Biden. So the Republicans who are pushing for Biden's impeachment are the same people who don't believe Donald Trump has ever done anything wrong. And that blasts their uh, credibility. What we want and need in, a, in an impeachment process is credibility, not vindictiveness, not partisanship, but credibility. And that starts with the evidence. Couldn't agree more. And you do go into depth about the Richard Nixon uh, uh, process in your book. Uh, like I said, you can go get that book wherever it's sold. Uh, I did want to pivot because, uh, you know, we were talking about this at the top of of this segment about um, some questions we wanted to ask you around the former president now being taken off the ballot in Colorado and in Maine. I know recently um, he has asked his lawyers have asked uh, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court kind of take on the case in Colorado and what the Colorado Supreme Court in a four to three decision ruled in terms of removing him off the ballot. You and I were talking before we came on air about how everyone now knows section three of the 14th amendment. And we're going to find out the application of, of this law and how it's interpreted because the former president's not charged with insurrection. He's charged with uh, obstructing an official proceeding. And all the legal beagles on TV, including a friend of the show, Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst, and, and John Avalon, a, a political analyst for CNN, they were engaged in a, in a morning debate about Colorado and the interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And I said, well, I know somebody who can kind of break this down and tell us if they're right and wrong in their arguments. So I want you to take a listen to this and we're going to react on the other side. So take a listen. Here's where I think the problem comes in with the ruling we got from the Colorado Supreme Court yesterday. Even if we take it as a given that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection, and I'm willing to sign on to that given all the facts, I think quite clearly, we still don't know, even as we sit here now, we don't know how this works. We don't know who gets to decide whether a person engaged in insurrection. We didn't know 100 years ago. We didn't know yesterday. We don't know now. The problem is the Constitution tells us how we're supposed to know. The 14th Amendment says, Section 5, Congress is supposed to pass laws telling us how this works. Congress has not done that. And so what Colorado did is they sort of made up this procedure. They had this quasi-hearing over five days. And now the Supreme Court of Colorado, by a four to three margin, is saying, eh, good enough, he's out. That is a violation of due process. And that is why I think that this ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court is going to be struck down. The Constitution says what it says. The Colorado Supreme Court decided that the Constitution still matters and it applies to Donald Trump. The 14th Amendment, Section 3, specifically says, we had the language up there, that no person who took an oath to uphold the Constitution and engages in insurrection or rebellion or gives aid or comfort to said insurrection or rebellion is eligible to hold any office. That's the language. Any office, civil or federal. And, and people can parse, well, is it... It was it anticipated to be under a president uh, under a president? I know if you read the articles, the debates around the ratification, senators at that time are saying this is also forward looking. This is not just about the Confederacy and the U.S. Civil War. All right. So you heard a little bit there of their back and forth. Obviously, Ellie pointing to due process uh, and Donald Trump maybe not getting that. Obviously, John talking about um, what the amendment, uh, what the excuse me, what the section in the amendment actually says about holding public office and giving aid or comfort to anybody participating in an insurrection. First, I would love to get from you kind of a breakdown of what they're arguing against and the merits of each of their arguments. And then as this goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, as of this taping, they have not weighed in on it. Where do you think it nets out? And do you think they weigh in and set a precedent that other states, you know, depending upon where they lean and their legislatures lean, could actually, you know, take either Joe Biden or President Trump off of the ballots? Well, I know both Ellie and John, and I respect them both. Um, and 
uh, each of them has a point to be made. Um, Ellie, who was the first speaker, uh, makes the point, which I think is right, that we just don't know for sure how Section 3 is supposed to be implemented. We know the language, that's what John points out. The language is pretty straightforward. Uh, and so what we've got to figure out is first, how should Section 3 apply? Who applies it? Who makes the determination about insurrection or rebellion? And then we also have to figure out, does it apply to the president? So now we go beyond their statements back to the law. Um, Section 3 does not reference the president expressly. And there's this question whether or not the presidency itself is covered by Section 3. Because Section 3 mentions senators, representatives, and officers of the United States. So the question before the Supreme Court will not be about due process. The question before the Supreme Court will be, is the president an officer of the United States such that he, he the president, would be covered by Section 3. There, there are Supreme Court decisions suggesting officers of the United States work under the president. And, and the presidency itself is not necessarily an office of the United States, but instead a unique office. So the Supreme Court could rule that the presidency itself is not affected or covered by Section 3. I think that's what a lot of people might expect the Supreme Court to do, especially because there are several justices appointed by President Trump who are likely to rule in a way that will please him. The counter argument to that sort of takes off from where John left off. And that has to do with the plain language of Section 3 and the fact that it would be an absurd reading of Section 3 not to include the president. It includes everybody else, but somehow it overlooks the presidency. That would be absurd in the aftermath of the Civil War if, if uh, the narrow reading of Section 3 that doesn't apply to the president prevails, then we could expect the absurd result back after the Civil War of Jefferson Davis running for the presidency. Nothing blocking him from being president, being elected, or serving. And that is not what the framers of the 14th Amendment wanted. That, that would be an absurd result. And I think it's not a result consistent with what we know about Section 3. Michael, does a precedent like that run the risk of then disrupting previous decisions or conversations that, you know, that the court has brought up of the idea that if the presidency is viewed as a separate office, you know, we heard this a little bit in the form of um, confidential documents that this these, you know, like the Espionage Act, for example, but the documents that were found in the former president's, you know, in the state, that was an argument of like, it's not, it doesn't, this doesn't apply to him. So does the, do we run the risk of, or is the precedent possibly that there's essentially an exclusion of the president from, well, I guess, almost unless the person's name, unless the role is named in the Constitution? Well, I think we've got to keep the big picture in mind, because if the Trump arguments work, Section 3 doesn't apply to me, the espionage doesn't apply to me, I can't be held liable in impeachment because um, I'm the law. If those arguments from Trump are correct, then we reach the conclusion that as long as the president is Donald Trump, he's above the law. And by the way, that's exactly what the framers opposed. They created a constitution in which no one was above the law. So anything that would lead to the conclusion that the presidency, again, only occupied by Donald Trump, guess what? If it's occupied by Joe Biden, Republicans say, oh, every law in the world applies to him. Well, that tells us there's no principle involved in their activity. But if there's a principle involved, it applies no matter who holds the office. It applies um, equally to everyone who occupies the presidency. And that means, in effect, no one is above the law. And so I think as far as Donald Trump is concerned, the law applies to him, not just when he's president, but particularly after he's president. This is the mistake Trump makes. Trump argues, and his lawyers argue, somehow, as an ex-president, he's entitled to all the same 
privileges that the current president is entitled to. There's no such rule in American law. We have only one president at a time. Donald Trump may not like it, but Joe Biden fairly won the presidency. He fairly occupies the presidency, and he is currently the president of the United States. That's a fact, and the law supports that fact. Donald Trump wants to be a king, but our Constitution doesn't allow for that. So that's his frustration. You know, keeping on theme, because Colorado wasn't the only state that did this, but Colorado obviously went through the judiciary, whereas in Maine, we recently saw the Secretary of State uh, removing the former president from, or barring, excuse me, uh, the former president from the, the state's ballot. And we'll see how that plays out in the courts. Um, given the familiarity that maybe you have with what the Secretary of State did, can you kind of explain to our audience um, why she did that? There was calls from Trump's lawyers for her to recuse herself from doing this because of some biases? Is there anything to that argument? Where do you see this playing out as well? And will the Colorado decision, if it goes before the Supreme Court, could that factor into what happens in Maine? There's no credibility and legitimacy at all to the Trump arguments that the Secretary of State of Maine should somehow be disqualified because she's not a Trump lover. Um, she is rightfully the Secretary of State. Doesn't matter what her political party is. And so she's entitled to exercise the powers of that office. One of the powers of that office is to determine the eligibility of people who want to be on the ballot. And she's made a determination within the scope of her power that Trump is not qualified to be on the ballot because he violates the terms of Section 3. That's a reasonable construction of Section 3. It was a construction by a state board back here in North Carolina in a case that involved uh, Matthew Cawthorn um, that was decided several years ago. Um, but if we fast forward back to the present, present uh, what we're concerned with is facts and the law. Those should not depend on partisanship. And the fact is that Donald Trump did what he did on January 6th. Um, and by the way, there was a huge lead in to January 6th. He was trying mightily to uh, undermine the process uh, for confirming the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. He's still trying to undermine that process. But the facts are that Biden won the presidency fair and square. He's the president. And if there's evidence of serious wrongdoing by Joe Biden, that would be featured in an impeachment inquiry. The difficulty here is there are no facts to support that. Republicans themselves have said there's no evidence. Republican expert witnesses have said there's no evidence. So if they say there's no evidence, I'm willing to agree with them on that point. Speaking of uh, the facts and the law, you can go get that book that I mentioned before uh, that you wrote. It's out now wherever books are. So I think as of this taping coming out, the book is out there. It's called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. One thing we like to do with authors that come on this show, uh, Professor Gerhardt, is uh, somebody's at, at Barnes & Noble or a local bookstore. They see the book. They pick it up. You happen to be over their right shoulder. You tap on them and you go, hey, I wrote that book. Give them the elevator pitch of why they should go up to the register and, and purchase the book. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Um, my hope is that the book will be a, a, a useful introduction to the actual law of presidential impeachment and to the actual process that uh, the Constitution sets up for holding presidents accountable for their misconduct. That's the point of the book. The point of the book is not to reward one party or another, but it's simply to get the law straight. So anyone interested in getting the law straight would benefit from reading the book. There you go. And that's that's what that's what I like about the book, you know, nonpartisan, just cutting to it with respect to the laws. Uh, Professor Gerhardt, I can't thank you enough for hopping on the program, giving us a couple minutes. Continue success to you and please stay safe. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And you, you stay safe as well. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Better Sleep, a personalized sleep experience for more restful nights and wakeful days. Nick. How's your sleeping habits, buddy? I know you got two kids. You wake up early. You go to sleep late, probably. Take me through. Are you are you sleeping better? Do you need help getting to sleep? What's, what's, what's your big uh, issue and hang up here as you're trying to fall asleep at night? My quality sleep. I, I tend to, I tend to go to sleep late. You know, I, I love to read, and but inevitably I do have to get up early. So I'm averaging probably maybe like five hours of what I would consider like quality sleep. So yeah, I'm I was excited you mentioned this partnership because. You know, one of the things about Better Sleep that's awesome is the fact that the entire sleep experience is what they focus on. Everything from sounds to help you sleep, you know, better understanding your sleep patterns. And Mike, that's that's really the breakdown that they offer. Super easy app to use. Um, I can't brag enough about it. I'm starting to use it myself just to really just better understand how I sleep and how I can improve that. Because it's we take it for granted, but almost any athlete will tell you, any professional will tell you. Our understanding of sleep is coming to the forefront of what really helps to improve performance. So I'm, I'm all for it. No, you're right. Anybody will tell you, you need your eight hours at least. Improve your well-being in just one week. If you go to the link right now in our show notes, it's going to take you over to better sleep. And you can take the quiz. They have a take the quiz button that's available right there as soon as you come into the app. So that way it can adjust the sounds and everything you need to get a better quality sleep. Click the link in our show notes right now and head to bettersleep.com for a restful night's sleep. Nick, today's episode is presented as always by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why Fresh Roasted Coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk? You know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can, you can make from home. And you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what Fresh Roasted Coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough, Often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roasted Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee. But you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. Enter in the promo code Can We Please Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. 
All right. Our thank yous there to Professor Michael Gerhardt, like I mentioned, UNC law professor. The book is out available wherever books are sold. I believe the book is out because as of this taping, if not, it will be out. You can pre-order it. Um, it's called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. Like his book is really a really good explainer of uh, a lot of the impeachment stuff. Obviously, he doesn't dive into um, what we were just talking about with Colorado and Maine, but his book is a really good explainer on the process because the House is thinking of impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. They're thinking of impeaching President Biden if they find enough evidence. So go get the book. Our thank yous to him for for coming on the program. Uh, before we sign off here, Nick, you know, one story that's been kind of making the headlines uh, across the outlets out there was the recent, the, excuse me, the recent resignation of, of Harvard President Claudine Gay, she resigned after obviously a firestorm of criticism that she got pretty much everywhere. And so did all of the presidents that appeared in that congressional hearing that happened a few weeks ago. And they were asked by Representative Elise Stefanik about uh, anti-Semitism on college campuses and did it violate the code of conducts for these universities and the way these presidents answered all of this caused this, you know, firestorm of controversy because all these news outlets in whatever direction were like, these are terrible answers that they're giving. And then big mega donors at these universities were like, we're going to pull our money if you don't get rid of these folks. And, and the Harvard president was the second president to resign in this. We'll see what happens with the MIT president. If you don't know anything about the story at a high level, take a listen to this. Tonight, embattled Harvard President Claudine Gay stamping down, abruptly ending her turbulent six-month tenure as the institution's first black president, the shortest term of anyone in that position. In a letter to the Harvard community, Gay writing, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign and that it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor to bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Calls for Gay's resignation followed backlash to this response at last month's congressional hearing when Republican Elise Stefanik pressed her about anti-Semitism on college campuses. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes. Pressure grew in the following weeks, with Gay facing multiple allegations of plagiarism in her academic work. Harvard initially standing by Gay, but today the board accepting her resignation. All right. So you heard their summation. Uh, shout out to the folks over at NBC News that have been covering this and the other outlets that have been covering it. But should we be covering? It? Does this matter? W what was this all about? Right. The hearing that happened over on Capitol Hill uh, with these um, three different presidents uh, of MIT, uh, UPenn and Harvard, respectively, was to discuss what everybody has been talking about, the rise of anti-Semitism that's been happening on college campuses. I want to shout out before Nick, you and I really talk about um, how we feel about this. Why is this being covered in the news? I mean, Nick, I wanted to play a game with you real quick. And it's a simple yes or no answer. If you do know, who is the president of Rutgers University? Do you know of our alma mater? Not off the top of my head. Okay. And there, therein lies the answer that I wanted. Because how many people truly know the university president? And Nick doesn't even know the president's name of the school we went to. Now, I'm a psycho. It's Jonathan Holloway. But do you need to know the university president at a national level? And why is this a story? So I wanted to get into a little bit of the coverage that I've been hearing and seeing about this, because from the hearing to the calls to, for resignation, um, and now subsequent, both two of them have resigned, one a white woman, one a black woman. The third is a white woman who's the president of MIT, and everyone's waiting on whether or not she'll you know, be pressured to resign. But there was an article on BET.com from Ivory Tolson, um, and in this article, he mentions the following five bullet points that I thought was interesting, and I want to bring it here, Nick, for you and I to discuss. First, he says, why would Harvard entertain a request from New York Representative Elise Stefanik, who has promoted white nationalism before without a subpoena. Why didn't Harvard's legal team fight Dr. Gay's involvement in this, you know, hearing? 
a good question. And a lot of people have posed that, you know, like, but also maybe that speaks to her leadership. Why would she entertain going on Capitol Hill to discuss something that is not of federal concern? It's, it's her campus. It's Harvard University. Like, why does she need to go on Capitol Hill to talk about that? The second point he points out was why were women the only university presidents called to testify, which I think was a good point. Not sure how the committee was set up, structured, who they reached out to, who accepted, who declined. But there only happened to be three women that attended. Like I mentioned, two white women and one black woman. And I want to get to that in a second, by the way. Why didn't the third point he put, uh, he raised, why didn't Harvard's communication team properly prepare Dr. Gay for the hearing, which is really good. Um, there's a couple of other points in there, but the biggest overarching point is why would she go to a hearing? And the biggest thing I wanted to get to, and Nick, I, I'm going to defer to you on the education part of this, you know, a college president, you know, uh, uh, having to talk about issues that are happening around the country that are being covered, but is it happening on my campus and why is it of federal concern? I want you to get into that. But the biggest things for me that I've seen, and you and I were looking up numbers about this, about women CEOs for all intent and purpose, because the, a campus president, a university president is the CEO of a school. And according to Fortune, there's not that many women CEOs out there. And there's even way less single digits of ones of color. So the biggest thing has been made about that she's losing her job because of this. But then the argument is, well, she got her job because she's a black woman. But which one is it? I, I, was I was so befuddled by the coverage and outrage I'm seeing from different people talking about her being forced to resign because she's a black woman. I just mentioned there's two other white women on the panel. One that got it way worse in terms of coverage, the UPenn professor, who was the one that was probably grill grilled the longest and interrogated the longest by Stefanik because of her answers about the code of conduct policy uh, at, the, at UPenn. And then, so now she loses her job and now it's, well, she shouldn't have had it because she only got it because she was a black woman. Am, am I am I in the twilight zone here, Nick? I mean, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, because you and I have been texting back and forth about this, but we, we haven't been really paying close attention to it. Now it's only a story because the people that don't want the mob to win, the normal side that says you don't want to get canceled, you don't want the mob to cancel you, now have, in essence, canceled two university presidents for going to a hearing that was not on the up and up, according to reports. What do you make of it all? I agree in the sense that it is, I was a little confused why people went. Um, and I will never stop bringing this up. I think to have Elise Stefanik, who is a avid Trump supporter, who had nothing to say about Charlottesville in 2017, for her to ask these questions and try to come off as though she is a proponent for fighting anti-Semitism is laughable. Um, anyone who supports the former president and is not willing to to go toe to toe with him about his support of organizations like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys is is being disingenuous when they say they give a damn about anti-Semitism. That being said, you know, the story about Claudine Gay is a fascinating one because, um, you know, there's a great story in Politico. Actually, this is written by I just saw this recently. This is written by Ian Ward. Uh, it actually came out uh, January 3rd. So just the just yesterday. And it focuses on particularly uh, one Christopher Rufo uh, and Rufo is a is a conservative activist who was who did this interview with Ward and breaks down the strategy to get Claudine to get the Harvard the now um, you know removed uh, president of Harvard Claudine Gay out of the paint as people like to say and he's very methodical about his intention of targeting her now he's also known for going after. Diverse, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts uh, was also a very, a very staunch opponent of critical race theory. So he's, he's been known for doing things like this. And really, his strategy was about being able to get the story into the media, build off the momentum of just the outrage from her comments uh, during the congressional hearing, and then also mentioning the fact that you know, she she had plagiarized or just not credited her um, the work of other scholars in her writing. And he basically celebrates the fact that he was able to, you know, whip up this type of momentum that led to her, 
you know, choosing to resign. And the question I bring up there is like, that's a targeted activity. Now, is it, is it correlation or causation? Like did all this stuff, this person do cause, you know, now president gay to resign? It's hard to say, but for someone to say that, like, yeah, we are responsible for, you know, really raising awareness of this person and that they should no longer you know, be headed of a college. It does call into question. It does call into question motivation. Is that a matter of race? I tend to lean toward yes, but in all honesty, this just seems like a person who was targeted Now, to your point about the lack of women as leaders, as CEOs. Um, you know, what we see in the case of, of gay is a woman who had felt enormous pressure to leave her position from a media standpoint. Is that as bad as what we saw with the president? I think it was MIT who had, or no Penn who had resigned. I don't think so. I think in that case, we saw clips of that person's response played a lot more so than actually president, former president gays and show and was asked to leave or, you know, resigned similar to what, you know, gay had done. So the question that sort of sits with us is, was this a matter of race of getting this particular person to res- you know leave her post? I feel like there's a role that's played there, but I think in in totality, it's it's hard to say. But it is notable that you have a a, a dearth of women of color who are heads of colleges who, and you know, one of the rare cases, you know, steps down. I think in the larger conversation about the need for for di- for more diversity at the head of you know you know, you know, colleges, universities, this is, this is a blow to that. Um, You said earlier that, you know, some people said that she got her job because she's black. I don't know if there's any proof of that. She seemed like a qualified candidate. She was a qualified candidate. And that as always comes back to the argument about or against affirmative action, which is this idea that we simply look at race over all other factors for someone to get a role and to get a job. And you and I talked about that really skips over the idea of, of qualification that right. no one under affirmative action gets a position solely because of their race. They are a qualified candidate. Does race play a role? Absolutely. But it certainly played a role prior to the advent of affirmative action when you had disproportionately you know, white people that you know were in positions of a power and authority. Anyway, all that is to say from an educational standpoint, that conversation of like, you know, what is grounds for something that, you know, we should not tolerate on the college campus as it relates to anti-Semitism. And I was per- I, honestly, I was shocked at the responses that all three college presidents had. I understand they all have to, they all have to defer to their respective policies and such. But common sense should tell you that if someone is speaking in this way on your campus, you're not the government. You do have the right to say, hey, we can just kick you out of here. For saying these kinds of things and colleges should probably explore doing so. But the fact that all three presidents sort of could hem and hawed their way through it, regardless of who, who asked the question, be it Stefanik or any other member of Congress, is absurd. And I think there's a conversation there that if we can't agree on what is considered hate speech, I think there's something we need to explore about that. Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on, on the last part. Like, regardless of who's asking the question, it's real simple. She asked it about genocide, death to Jews. Does that violate the university's code of conduct? And to give some word salad answer of like, I'd have to check the policy of like, come on, like this isn't rocket science. Yes or no. Now, again, why you went there, why you went to Capitol Hill, knowing the backstory of this congressional person who's leading this hearing, or at least one of the people that's going to be sitting at this hearing, you and I go through this process all the time right now, Nick. We vet guests before they come on the show, either seen interviews that they've done, read articles that they've done, um, watched interview clips of other places they've appeared. Like You got to do your research first on somebody before you invite them over there. Same thing like that person said in the BET article, why wasn't Harvard's comms team aware of setting her up? For failure, I, I do want to say one thing. I am very sensitive to um, the the plight of women, minorities trying to get jobs, and then they get a high profile job, and now there's pressure for them to resign. I've told you this off air. I want to bring it here. Folks that look like me, look like Nick, darker, maybe a little bit lighter. Listen, 
hang on to the race card until there is no other option. As Michael Eric Dyson once told us on this show, until you have to boil it down and be so reductive that it's, it's right in front of your face, that it is plainly about race because there's two white women that were on that panel with her and both of them, one already resigned and got most of the heat, like we just mentioned, because of her answers. And it was played ad nauseum. And you Penn alums everywhere were being asked about it. And Harvard kind of took a back seat because Harvard had already said that they were standing behind pre uh, President Gay. And what happened? McGill, who was the president of UPenn, was getting all of the heat. Again, this is a white woman. So don't play the race card until it's the absolute factor where if she was the only one that was asked to resign by conservative, conservative media, and they didn't care about the other two white women's responses, yes, then I'd be with you. Yes, it's because she's black. No duh, right? Play the race card when it's the absolute thing that you can point to to say that it is race. Now, again, I say all that to say I understand there's not that many women in leadership positions. And I understand even less of them are black and brown. So I'm sensitive to that. And I agree with you about what you said about affirmative action. It was never to take the place of somebody just because they happen to be darker. It's to get them noticed so that way you know that these people exist and are just as qualified as their white counterparts. All right. We leave it there about the Harvard University president. Like I said, if you want to go check out anything about that story, uh, USA Today has a fantastic kind of deep dive about not only the hearing uh her backstory, her, you know, the plagiarism stuff that happened with her. Uh, Janine Santucci wrote it uh, also in Cybell Myers Osterman. I'm, hopefully I'm, I'm saying that name correctly. So you can go check out that article. Uh, speaking of checking out, you want to check out the video portion of our interview that we did with Professor Gerhardt. Head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. Hit the subscribe button for me while you're there. Go get his book. Like I mentioned, it's out now wherever books are sold and it's called the law of presidential impeachment a guide for the engaged citizen audio podcast platforms for us you know them by now apple spotify google shout out to everybody listens to us on good pods download the youtube music app and you can listen to episodes of the can we please talk podcast over on our friends platform youtube music shout out to Acast, our hosting platform we can't do it adam can't do it out each and every one of you that listens into this program as always i'm mike leon I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.